This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name's Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm working on a cold, but it's actually a cold, so that's good. Oh, that's good. Uh, <laughs> it's rare that, I mean, this is the modern thing, right? I'm sorry to hear that you have a cold, but happy that it's just a cold and not something else. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So actually in a great mood. That's good. How are you? How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Nice uh, Friday afternoon. We'll have some fun chat. So who do we have on the 3D pod today? Well, we've got Tali Rossman. And Tali, uh, well, did a, a wide range of uh, management roles, really, starting in IT for the Israeli Air Force, and later on, she's a management consultant. She worked for a really large energy company, uh, uh, later on, uh, software companies, a bit like in several different countries, very experienced executive, uh, ended up being at Stratasys for a while as well. And now she runs Xerox's metal additive manufacturing uh, initiative. Uh, called LM Additive, and uh, so Xerox, you know, it's a, it's a big company from the 2D uh, world, and uh, they used to have a 3D printing uh, initiative. They sold that to 3D Systems, and then they bought a technology um, which uh, used to be like the Vader technology, which essentially is a crucible that melts droplets of metal that can be deposited. And it was a bit of a weird technology. Everybody thought, like, where is this going? But it's a potentially very, very exciting technology because they have their own IP stack, and they could maybe mix a lot of different metals, and they could maybe do a lot of uh, work on environments other uh, processes can't work in. And uh, so it's a very, very exciting development to have them as a part of our industry. So we're very, very happy to have Tali here today. Hey, guys. Happy to be here. Uh, so Tali, tell us a little bit about, well, first off, how did you get into additive? Because you, you kind of like were in the, in the management consulting world and you ended up getting into additive a while ago, right? So, Yeah, I started my uh, career in strategy and corporate development. And then when Stratasys was uh, starting to grow uh, and grow through acquisitions um, very aggressively, I was dubbed to come and uh, um, be a corporate development leader and handled a lot of the acquisition stratuses did uh, a few years back. Okay, okay. Cool. And then and and then and so then and then you ended up rejoining with with Xerox in and and what was that like? Because that must have been a very very challenging kind of role, right? Because like well, you first off, you know, Xerox is new to additive, the technology was very new, you know, was that was that was that exciting was that very exciting to you? Yeah, exciting and challenging. So Xerox, and you kind of mentioned that briefly, but Xerox has been in research capacities, I will call it, in early stage uh, developments in 3D printing for about 20 years between its different research centers, uh, Park and Palo Alto, and the other research centers that Xerox has. But it never actually had a product out in the market. And through all this research, Xerox found itself in a position a few years ago where even though they don't have a single 3D printing product in the market, they have one of the largest IP portfolios in the industry. <laughs> of course. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, one of the things was, well, how valuable is this portfolio? Which areas are actually interested in and we should double down on them and take them from where they are, which is a TRL technology readiness level 
you know, two or three and we should invest and take them all the way to commercialization and, and build a business around. For me, I always had a vision of, you know, enabling distributed manufacturing, which I believe is the key to supply chain resiliency. And when I looked at some of the uh, patents and some of the areas of expertise of Xerox, whether if it's the liquid metal printer and whether if it's some of the software capabilities that Xerox has developed, I, I thought there was just so much great technology to build off on and work towards that vision. So it was certainly, certainly exciting, but also challenging to, to get those early stage technologies to where they are today. Okay. So explain to us a little bit like what well, you call LM now, right? Or uh, so explain to us how does it, LM matter. Yeah. So how, how does it work? Well, it works well. How does it actually, yeah. What is the process? Yeah. No. So, uh, so the first product uh, we took to market was the LMX, uh, which is based on the liquid metal technology. We made it commercially available just over a year ago and we're seeing, you know, great traction in the market. Um, and I'll explain why we're seeing this great traction in the market. But the way that it works is you start off with a spool of wire. Which again, you know, that's one of our key differentiators is that we're using wire and not powder. The wire gets fed into the printhead. It gets melted in the printhead, hence the liquid metal name. Essentially, we get a pool of liquid metal. Uh, and then we eject droplets of the metal onto the build plate to form the part. So it's not extrusion. It's a, kind of a drop by demand. But I mean, it's it almost sounds like a like a metal FDM printer for for simplistic sakes. Like I know there's a lot yeah. more going on there, obviously. But um, the fact yeah, that you that's have a what I said in the beginning. Wire, yeah, yeah. In the beginning, it looks really like that. And obviously, I come from Stratasys, so when I saw that, I was like, oh, okay, this is like FDM spool of wire onto the onto it, onto the bed, yeah, yeah. etc. But yeah, but the the difference is that the material is not extruded, but it's jetted drop by drop and really this is where a lot of the xerox capabilities kick in is in the ability to control very accurately uh, in a repeatable and reliable fashion how um how the how the droplets are being placed on the build plate okay okay and and so and so the commodity wire sounds interesting because that immediately signals like to us at least like low prices, right? Is that the breakthrough thing or what are the, some of the things you think? Because you're going to have to dislodge a bunch of other more established technologies or find a niche where the other ones don't work as well. You know, what, what are the real differentiating things that the, between this technology? So I think the first thing is the ease of deployability. And by that, I mean the ease of installation, the ease of training, and the ease of the ongoing maintenance. So when you look at the powder-based technologies and all their facility requirements, that alone could deter you from engaging with them. And even if you do take that leap, it could be a year with facility modifications and all that. For ours, you can roll LMX almost anywhere and get started. I'm based in North Carolina in a Class A office building before we moved here. It was an insurance company that was sitting here. So it's the least <laughs> building you can imagine. Uh, and the only thing we had to accommodate for was uh, really the power. And we got, you know, a couple of printers. Here so you didn't need like a venting system or any of that kind of stuff? It's and all so contained. So the facility requirements are pretty minimal. Um, we actually posted up on our website. So it's easily available, but it's pretty basic ventilation and then it's mostly just the power um so you can deploy this almost uh anywhere i would say without a lot of effort the training is also relatively straightforward and easy 
as well as the ongoing uh, maintenance of the printer. So you don't have powder um, handling and powder storage. You don't have hazardous material disposal. Anybody can roll up to the printer. You don't need a hazmat suit. You don't need your environmental health and safety department with protocols and trainings and uh, insurance and risks uh, that you have associated with powder. So we've made it exceptionally easy to get production-grade metal 3D printing in your arsenal, exceptionally easy to deploy, to get trained on, and to handle on an ongoing basis. I think that's the first thing. The second thing that kind of ties into it is how easy it is to get a usable part in your hands. So you think about other technologies, the printing is just one step. And after that, you can have seven more steps of post-processing, which could be extremely cumbersome, extremely labor-intensive, costly, time-consuming. So from when the print finishes till you have a usable part in your hand, can be days and, you know, could be a couple of weeks. With our technology, from when the print finishes till you're holding the part in your hands is less than a minute. Because all you're doing is you're grabbing the bill plate once it's done, put it, dunking it in a bucket of room temperature water, as we call it, the cooling and separation tank. And the part pops off from the bill plate and you're holding it in your hands. Now, there are some post-processing you may, you don't have to, but you may choose to do like, you know, sandblast or machine for better surface finish or, or, or some, you know, few hours in a regular oven, but that's it. There's no uh, powder removal. There's no debinding. There's no sintering. We don't experience the shrinkage or warpage that other technologies do. Um, you don't need hip, which I think is huge benefit that you don't need hip. So even if you were to account for all the post-processing with LMX, you can still get a usable part in your hands same day. Which I don't think a lot of other technologies can make that claim. For this first generation no. of LMX machines, what are you are you envisioning it for doing full-scale production of things, or is it still kind of a prototyping tool, or what stage would you say it's at for this generation? I, Firstly, I realize with LMX, future. you can make yeah. yeah. So today with LMX, you can already make real parts end use parts, you know, full stop period, you can do that. That said, you know, I don't think we're suitable for um, mass scale production. I don't see LMX going into making 100,000 of a certain part. I think where we really shine is in the ability to give you low volume parts really fast. So think about it like a backup generator type of functionality. And where we are doubling down on the technology, which I think the technology itself, parking aside LMX, which is the current product, the technology itself has immense potential. And we're really going to be focusing on making it applicable to more and more use cases by expanding the material range, uh, improving the freedom of design, elements like that. I think that's more important than trying to... um, do maybe some other things that are also possible. Okay, and why would you say it wouldn't? It isn't great at serial production. Why? Why? Why isn't that going to be your niche? Or? So I think to make a hundred thousand dollar, a hundred thousand units of a certain part, um, not only will we need to improve the speed, but you also need to improve uh, the economics. Because don't forget, people are making those parts today very successfully. I think we're the biggest pain point in the market today. Isn't in how to produce 100,000 of a part. I think the biggest pain point in the market today 
is how do I get the parts that I need when I need them and close to the point of consumption, circumventing all the supply chain disruptions that we're currently seeing. So I don't think that's the biggest pain point in the market today. I think the biggest pain point is low volume, on demand, where I need them parts. So that's what we're going after to solve. I mean, okay. low that's volume is a, is a major problem, right? I mean, George, you may not, but like I, anytime I want to run a hundred of something or 200, it's, it's not worth it. Like it's, it's easier to do a thousand and 10,000 of something than it is to do a couple hundred of something. So I get the, the need for that area. Um, interesting. Yeah. I think, I think what, what I think is the most exciting thing is the things you touched on, I think not coincidentally is like the whole thing about powder management powder yeah. uh just having powder <laughs> that can explode and stuff like that i think i think breathing in when powder. I saw it, yeah, yeah exactly it, immediately when i saw it i was like okay yeah this could be really suited for like the military for example like on board ships for example you don't have uh you know you don't want a powder fusion uh you know system on board a ship or on an oil platform for example um so so for those kind of things then also in in and then mro is really the shiny business case as well so is it is the combination of the safety plus the 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 quick to part kind of the time to part is that the 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 where you guys shine yeah you're spot on so i think the mro market today has a lot of challenges we want to go after these challenges and drive value in that space and i think the liquid metal technology and specifically the LMX product, which is the first one out of the gate, are extremely well suited for that. Mm-hmm. And how, how and much do one of the initial LMX machines go for right now? Approximately. So the, yeah, so we're list pricing uh, $700,000, which is exceptionally good because you don't need all the additional ancillary equipment that you would with some of the technologies, and you don't need all the facility investments, et cetera. So there's no... Um, hidden fees that jump on you six months later like with some other technologies okay like a vacuum kind cleaner of do we need a vacuum cleaner <laughs> well, yeah you don't need a vacuum cleaner, <laughs> you, don't a vacuum uh, cleaner. <laughs> you don't need wire edm you don't need none of that yeah okay okay um and uh what were you asking you seemed to ask an intelligent question there Rex. sorry <laughs> oh, yes. what kind of metals are you, are you guys currently allowing in the spooled format or what what can i put in it yeah, so we launched it out of the gate with aluminum 4008, which is uh, equivalent to casting alloy 356. Um, the next material on the roadmap coming soon is 6061. Uh, and in the short term, we're really going to be focusing on adding additional classes of aluminum and other low temp alloys. Um, reason being, I also think the existing metal technologies today, they don't lend themselves as well to aluminum. And aluminum is 25% of the global metal spare parts market. So we really want to hone in on that as a first step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I thought that was brilliant. I think I think it's also like everyone's always like you get caught in this trap where your customer's like, well, I don't know if I want it, but if it could do 360L, I might want it. And then, and then you end up make, <laughs> making metal, metal after metal after metal just for – uh, to chase these customers, and I think I think the focusing on the aluminum is a yeah, there's so much out there. I mean, you could just comfortably sell hundreds of units in just aluminum, and then and then maybe you have to go to do try figure out if stainless steel works years from now. You know, so I think that's quite a that's a brilliant move. Thank you. Um, yeah. And yeah, you know, it's twenty aluminum is twenty five percent of the metal spare parts market, so it's a huge market on its own. 
So I, th I think that's good. But then, okay, so you didn't announce something. You're doing something together with the Navy. Uh, I think, uh, so So is that also, is it defense MRO or aerospace or or are you just doing MRO generally at the time? It's a parts on a ship. So MRO generally, you know, I, I think if you look at the material properties of 4008 that we have and also what we have upcoming with 6061, that caters to a pretty broad range of use cases that we're suitable for, specifically with the Navy. Um, a lot of it has to do with the deployability of the printer. So the Navy, I think you mentioned that they have a vision of uh, what they call the floating factory and putting printers on every ship. And they can't contemplate doing that with most existing metal technologies today. And with the liquid metal technology, you know, we haven't proven it out on a ship yet, but at least you can contemplate putting this printer on a ship. Uh, so that's what we're marching towards. You know, the, the, right now, this whole resilience thing is really hot. And uh, of course, I looked at your website. And of course, you guys also are talking about this supply chain resilience stuff. I think in a military context, you know, we've all seen now that it's probably very useful as a military to be able to make everything you want to make yourself. And is that going to be a real uh, spear point for you guys as well? Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because we started talking about supply chain resiliency when we started, which was right before COVID. And I don't know how well the messaging resonated then. But now, you know, fast forward two and a half years later, right. this message is very clear and very resonating. Um, but I think I, I was in a, in a conference uh, about three weeks ago, and one of the speakers was saying that at this point in time, 3D printing is a matter of national security, in their view. And when they said it on the stage, I just 100% agreed with that. I think that ability to know that you have assurance in your ability to get the parts that you need in the defense space. It is a matter of national security. I think for companies, it's a matter of however you want to call it, company uh, security. And you may not choose 3D printing as your default form of production. You may, on a business as usual basis, continue uh, to source your part from a centralized manufacturer in, uh, somewhere overseas. But at least you should have, if needed, if the supply chains are disrupted, which is becoming more and more common these days, you need to have that ability in-house. And what, are the, what kind of size of parts can I make with this? So you have a 300 by 300, 300 millimeter, millimeter build volume, right? But how, are the, like, how big are the individual parts or how big and small are the individual parts? Yeah, so the build plate uh, is a 30 centimeters by 30 centimeters by 30 centimeters uh, cube. So that's the max size of the parts. I will say right now on the Z, we are recommending uh, not utilizing yet uh, the full 300, but we're working to fix uh, that so you won't compromise on the material properties uh, on the Z. So you'll be able to utilize the full 30 by 30 by 30. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and how fast is it? I mean, I know this is a stupid question because like we don't really have a, a speed <laughs> metric uh, in, in our industry, and everybody just has you know just can make up whatever they want. So, right. <laughs> so yeah, it's funny. Idea, it's like it's like a yeah. it's like your car can get to two hundred miles an hour, but when's the last yeah. time you actually drove it at two hundred miles an hour? Exactly. Yeah, right? Like, or the last time you accelerated from zero to sixty? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah what, what, exactly. What's the yield kind of? Or what, can, can we give it? idea of the yield of throughput or anything like that. yeah so i'll tell you the theoretical or 200 miles an hour and then i'll tell you the actual yeah, no. so let's do it um, <laughs> yeah so the so the max uh print speed is half a pound an hour but again 
an analogy of the cars that's theoretical. What we're actually seeing with most, most parts and most geometries is about uh, 0.2 pounds an hour um, is the average uh, print speed across parts. Um, so that's really the way to think about it. It's like, what's my part mass and 0.2 pounds an hour. But again, from when the print finishes till you're holding the part in your hands is less than uh, one minute. So it's it's kind of net, that printing time, if that makes sense. I, I had to resort to Google for this, but uh, that's, that's 90 <laughs> grams. Uh, that's 90 grams for those of us uh, are, are looking at uh, a at, uh, metric, by the way. Um, so, okay. So, so for that kind of throughput, the yield is like, then, then the immediacy thing is really like what you're going for. Cause then, you know, on an aircraft carrier, you don't really care because that's the only way you're going to get that fastener in that day. Right. Or. Yeah. So there's, you know, certain uh, parts we've been uh, testing uh, with our partners at NPS and the Naval Postgraduate School. And, you know, some of the parts they want, they can crank out of an LMX in two, three, four hours. And again, yeah. since you don't need hip, and since the post-processing is so much easier, you're getting usable parts in your hands same day. And and so what, yeah, you've mentioned not needing hip for a while. I mean, a hip for us is kind of like a, a given. It's kind of like what you have to do, <laughs> like distressing and, remo- <laughs> and cutting it from the build platform. What's the significance of this? It's just, you know, it's just a process step, or what's the significance of this for you? I think the significance to customers is two things. Uh, one is the cost, and the second one is the time, because HIP is really expensive, and also almost nobody has it in-house, so you're outsourcing it. So even if you print a part in two, three hours, the second you have to outsource it for post-processing and send it to the vendor, and the vendor does their thing, and then they send it back to you, and you're wasting a few good days here, days that you're saving with the liquid metal technology. But I think also above that, you, again, if you're thinking about ship deployability or thinking about remote location deployability inland, but you know, in, in remote places, you might not have easy access to all that post-processing equipment. And since you don't mm-hmm. need it with ours, you can actually deploy it, uh, yeah, pretty much anywhere. Okay. So the obvious thing is the Navy, right? I mean, I think I think that, that, that for everyone is the Navy, but the Navy has typically very, very big parts, right? Uh, the One of the issues that the, the, the shipping industry is a bit lukewarm on 3D printing is they think of parts are like, you know, 30 kilos or, you know, on a, you know, like a meter by a meter. They have really large parts. Or are you going to scale up in that direction? Is that kind of what they, they want from you? Or, or do you think there's enough there in these, these relatively small parts for them to, for them to be super interested? First of all, I mean, we're seeing a lot of, you know, small parts, less than 30 centimeters that fit on the build weight that they have high interest in doing. Uh, I don't know the extent to which I can share all these parts, but certainly mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of meat there in that. Um, secondly, I think the nice thing about the liquid metal technology is that it can scale. Uh, it's a scalable technology across materials, but also if you look at the configuration of the partner, essentially... Um, the printhead is stationary and the bill plate's moving. So it's not a big stretch to just move the bill plate further out on the X or, or the Y uh, and enable larger parts. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not a, a short-term item that will require redesigning uh, some things about the printer, but it certainly is technologically possible if we see the demand from customers for it. And then a skeptic, of course, is going to say, like, well, I should put a, a Haas, I should put a CNC machine instead of this. What's the advantage of the printer if we're looking at for this MRO uh, opposed to, let's say, for example, CNC, like a vertical machining station or something like that? So there's, uh, so there's a few things. Um, one is the geometry, which you might not be able to machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, this is 
you know, I would invite every person that says that to just visit us in Cary, North Carolina. I'll be happy to give them a tour and show them just how easy it is uh, to make a part using an LMX and the possibilities that it enables you to do. That's that's the call to action from the podcast. Come visit us (laughs) and see it live. One thing I've really, really looked at is what I think is is very exciting. If we are talking about like a, a warfare type scenario, you, r- rather than also straight up replace MRO replacement parts, there have been a lot of experiments, especially in the U.S. military, uh, about like iteratively improving parts. So, you know, designing new functionality because a certain thing works. Uh, I probably mentioned this in a while. This is my go-to example of this in, in Gulf War One or I don't know what we call it now. You know, the Apache helicopter was a tank destroyer, big tank battles. It was absent because, well, the, the, the Saudi sand essentially got caught in its filter, right, or, or, or in disabling the helicopter. Now, this is a really simple repair, but they couldn't do it, right? It, do you see that kind of stuff as well, this iterative, iteratively improving your kit, could, you know, according to the battlefield or according to the enemy? Is that something that, that you think is going to be happening a lot more? Yeah, absolutely. I think when you have uh, your back against the wall, you're willing to make um, adjustments and be a lot more flexible than when you don't have your back against the wall. Uh, and so as you're thinking about redesigning the parts to enable printing them on demand on the spot with whatever technology you're going to have, be it LMX or being something else, uh, I think what you also need is very easy to use software tools that can tell you, is this design going to be printable? And if it's going to be printable, what will be the material properties that you're going to get? Uh, so it's a great segue to uh, the software platform we're actually launching next week. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, it, it, yeah. you, you teed me up for it very nicely. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know. Okay, well, what, what's the, so tell us more what's about the software. software. Yeah, tell us about the software. Oh, I'm glad you asked. Uh, so next week in Rapid, we're going to be launching Navigator. Um, which is our digital manufacturing software platform. Uh, it's important to say it is completely technology agnostic, so it's not just for LMX and liquid metal. It runs across the gamut of all the popular uh, technologies, part of Bitfusion, BinderJet, FDM, SLA, SLS, liquid metal, uh, and others. And it essentially enables you very easily. You can upload any part to it, be it a 3D model or actually even be it a drawing, PDF or JPEG, and we'll analyze the part and we're going to tell you the different ways you can make the part. So, oh, you can use, you know, an X1 160 Pro to make this part, or you can use a Xerox LMX to make this part, so on and so forth. Uh, and we'll tell you the material properties uh, that you can expect depending on the material that's going to be used. So we have a big database of different 3D printers and the materials associated with them and really advanced uh, capabilities around the geometry analysis and properties analysis, so we can tell you at any given point within 30 seconds, can I 3D print this part? If so, with which technologies and what will be the properties? And by the way, there's also cost estimation there that's going to compare it to uh, traditional manufacturing, like um, CNC to your point, or or casting, so you can make an informed decision at any given point. That sounds really helpful, and I make a lot of money right now like <laughs> telling people this, so, <laughs> so I'm a bit worried about that. <laughs> Yeah, so so to your point, we actually try to do that. Automate the consultant. Great. Yeah. So take uh, that consultant that takes uh, <laughs> the weeks and months to sift for your parts and give you the recommendations and put them in a great. automated <laughs> software that breaks it out. But I'll be happy to sell you Navigator, and you can tell the customers you're taking a week to analyze the parts. You'll actually do it in five minutes, and then you can go to the beach. 
Yeah. Uh, okay, that's good. I like that. This is that's yeah, actually that's obvious. You know, I just have to put in PowerPoint or something, and then write <laughs> value chain somewhere. Um, okay. <laughs> okay, that sounds like a really useful logo. tool, actually. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and that sounds like a really useful tool. And the thing is, do I trust you guys on this? You know what I mean? It's like first, like on the one hand. Are the calculations all honest? And on the other hand, what are you going to do with my like my files and stuff like that? You know what I mean? Yeah, so I think this is where being part of Xerox is uh, really helpful. Companies already trust Xerox with their most sensitive documents. So now we're relying on the same level of credibility of Xerox for you to trust us with your parts. Um, and again, customers are willing to are, are welcome to try it out, put a few parts, see the recommendations, and see that it's indeed technology agnostic and reliable and everything sits on the Xerox cloud with all the Xerox security certificates. Okay. Okay. And then what do you hope to gain from this? What's the, what's the, the angle I'd say for you guys internally? Is it really about like, you know, capturing all these geometries, being a helpful tool, getting, getting known, getting used every day? Is, what's, what's the thing there? So I think one of the biggest barriers to wider adoption of additive manufacturing is that customers don't know where to start, right? They don't know which parts are suitable and which parts are not because their parts are just not suitable for additive manufacturing. So what are the suitable parts for additive manufacturing? If I 3D print those parts, what am I expected to get in terms of material properties? And then also, what is the cost estimation? Because just because you can 3D print a part doesn't mean that you should. Right. Maybe you should stick to, you know, continue to do it with traditional manufacturing. So Today, and you know this, this is a process that takes companies months. And at the end of that few months process, maybe they just identified, uh, you know, just a handful of parts. With this, they can they can look at all their parts repository and very easily across all their different parts, identify all the parts that are uh, suitable for 3D printing very easily. They can also make informed decision based on the parts that they want to 3D print. What is the best printer for them to buy? You know, because if other parts they want to make are, uh, you know, in titanium, for example, then they're not going to, you know, pick LMX. They're probably going to pick a part of fusion printers. But, you know, if they have a lot of parts that they want to make with aluminum, then, you know, it'll direct them in LMX. So I think that part of helping companies with much simplified workflows around this and identify the parts for 3D printing and make informed decisions around 3D printing, I think is going to add tremendous value to our customers. And how's it where the pricing work? I mean, you said I could try it a little bit for free, but uh, how's the pricing of this the software work? Yeah, so it's an annual uh, subscription fee since it's mm-hmm. you know it's a cloud-based platform hosted on the Xerox cloud again with all the Xerox uh, security certificate. Uh, so it's an annual subscription fee that's essentially based on the number of parts that you're going to be analyzing for the platform. Okay, okay. That's on. Uh, I like the the pricing models where you grow as you kind of like pay with it and stuff. And and is this really like is this a corporate tool? Is this like for like really large corporations to to check all their inventory, or is this for like uh, one person in one department checking their local inventory? Who, who's the ideal user for this? So I think it's both, and I think this is the nice thing about the pricing model being uh, attached to the number of parts is that you can have uh, different users tapping into it. I think the number one use case today, given where the market is, will really be for supply chain managers that are struggling to get a certain part to upload it and within 30 seconds see what other alternatives they have at their disposal. Can they 3D print it looking at all the different technologies? Can they 3D print it looking just at technologies that they have in-house in their model shop, so on and so forth? But I certainly think this will also be a tool for companies going into additive manufacturing and as they're designing parts, looking at 
is this design, should we need to in the future 3D print it, is this design right off the bat, is it 3D printable? And if not, why? Um, because if a part is not printable, we'll very easily tell you why. Oh, it's because of this wall thickness, it's because of this overhang. And you can make an informed decision right off the bat to modify your design such that if you need to in the future, you can 3D print it. Okay, that sounds really interesting. I like for me, I think I, I would totally use that. I mean, I look forward to testing that and playing with it. I think that'd be really cool. But like for these Navy customers and companies like Lockheed and stuff like that, that does seem like it, the cloud thing would not be what they want, right? Right. I know. So <laughs> you can, you can, <laughs> like, yeah. So you can customize it and have it on prem. You know, okay. it's it's not an issue. It's software, so you can. You can take it on-prem. Uh, I, I do think, you know, with on-prem, what you're not getting is the, the continuous update. So, you know, as new 3D printers emerge in the market, as more materials are being added, if you're on the cloud, uh, like any other software, that you get continuous updates. Um, if yeah. you're taking it on-prem, which is a possibility, you're not going to get that benefit. Okay. But certainly to your point, with extremely sensitive uh, domains and defense that might be the preference. And do you use Sinful for this? Is that the material database based on that, or did you do all the testing and stuff yourself, or what was the, the, the No, we're partnering with a few companies in this industry, so it was actually interesting. We've done a very uh, thorough due diligence of, uh, I think, close to 100 companies in this uh, domain. We looked at uh, everybody, and uh, we picked a few companies that we think are, have best-of-breed point solutions and uh, we're collaborating with them. So some of this platform is Xerox and some of this platform is the result of collaboration with some promising companies in the space. And okay, so if we're looking to the future, I mean, okay, you guys seem pretty much assured of this MRO thing, the Navy, what other things, Where? what other businesses would you like to be in? Do, do you have other areas or the customers you'd really like to have? Or? Yeah, so certainly, I mean, I think in the manufacturing space, we have a big room to play. I think. Uh, and again, it's all about the distributed manufacturing. So I think, you know, a powder bed uh, fusion technology lends itself well to a centralized facility where you have 30 experts around it. Um, but I think companies should have the ability to make parts on demand, not just in one centralized facility, but also in all of the remote uh, facilities and manufacturing operations. So I, I kind of see a scaling, if you will not by having 20 LMX in one location for a customer, but in having 20 LMX in 20 different locations for that customer. Right. So it's really distributing it like to on the unit level or the base level or something for taking the military thing rather than like in, in, at Lockheed, let's say. Like it'll be like at the forward operating area maybe or something like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, for the military, but again, even in manufacturing companies, they have multiple facilities, multiple manufacturing operations, and we want to tap into those. Okay, okay. And then also, I, you know, the natural one for me, it, it seems like right of like a, uh, what's now called energy because they don't want to be called oil and gas anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They do um, more than just that. Yeah. That's why they don't we're just energy. It. It's just energy. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so certainly you're thinking about remote oil rigs and, and the likes. Yeah. So, so that's the thing. I think anybody that has a need to get parts in remote locations. And, and again, remote doesn't have to be a ship in the middle of the ocean. Remote can just be not in the centralized facility. And where time is of the essence, meaning the ability to get the part on the same day instead mm -hmm. of waiting for that part for a week or a few weeks, if that is valuable, then LMX has room to play. 
Okay, okay. And you said a little bit. I mean, how you know how how is how what's what are some of the properties of your parts? So, so how how accurate can they get? And 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 and, and what strong, kind of overhangs and stuff can you yeah. do? What kind of thing? Give us a little bit of an idea what what parts I can make with this and what parts are, are, are problematic at the moment. Yeah. So so firstly, you know, not to go over the whole kind of material spec sheet. Um, I, I will say all that information is available on our website in xerox.com slash 3D printing in one word. Um, so, so customers and, and prospects can easily see the material properties and the design guide and everything. I think right now, you know, to be perfectly honest, I think our biggest limitation is the material range. So we're working with aluminum 4008. We're looking to expand. But I think certainly today that's I, I would say that's that's the number one limitations. What about in the future iterations? I, I realize you can't divulge everything. What are your hopes uh, that the LX <laughs> line will will do in its future iterations? Do you see a, a reduced cost version, a larger version, a a desktop version? I'm probably not, but <laughs> to ask the question. Yeah, it's funny. Customers want it to be bigger, but also fit on the desktop. Right, that's right. I want, I want to make massive parts, but I want it to fit in a space that's smaller than yeah. the part that I'm making. I want to make a one meter part, but have it fit on my 50 centimeters desk. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's a challenge right there. Um, no, so I think the number one thing we're really hearing from customers is expanding the material range. So that's going to be the number one thing we're going to be focusing on. Certainly, to your point, we're getting kind of these demands. Can you make the printer smaller, but also can you make it bigger uh, for bigger parts? So um, there could be maybe more than one type of LMX out there in the future. Um, and then, you know, continuous engineering for, um, for serviceability, for cost reduction, for reliability. That's something we're continuously working on. Um, you know, again, it's, you know, LMX is a is a fantastic product. You can already use it to make parts out of the gate, but it's still an early stage technology. The liquid metal technology has immense potential, uh, in my view, and we have a lot of items on the roadmap. But number one priority is kind of really expanding the material range. And, and where do you like just hope to be in five years? You hope to have like thousands of printers, a leader in a particular vertical. How do you define success? Well, obviously, the number of users is a great proxy for success. But I really care about how the printers are being are going to be utilized. And if we can fulfill on that vision of enabling distributed manufacturing and the supply chain resiliency, so if we can see printers on chips, printers in oil rigs, printers in remote manufacturing locations, uh, then I will know we've we've made it and we've fulfilled our vision. So it's not just about okay. you know how many we're gonna sell, it's also where we're gonna sell. Okay. All right. Well, Tali, thank you so much for, for your time today. Ah, thank you guys. It's been my pleasure. And thank you, Max, for being here once again. Yeah, always choice. And thank you for listening. And uh, this is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.